Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Coming up in this episode... If I could stop history in its tracks, maybe I would. But I can't, Carson. For you nor I can hold back time. Downton Abbey scribe Julian Fellows and Carnival Films CEO Gareth Neem reflect on a decade working together on the period drama, plus new series Belgravia and The Gilded Age. And... Did you see the stylish kids in the riot? Shoveled up like monks at the night on fire wombles bleed. Trunches and shields, you know I cherish you, my love. Libertine's guitarist Carl Barrett, sister Lucy and producer Zoe Rocker discuss their noughties indie music sing drama The Heartless. That's all coming up in a moment, but first a rundown of some of the news from C21 Media this week. NBC Universal signed Family Guy creator Seth MacFarlane to a five-year overall deal worth a reported $200 million, marking an end to his decades-long relationship with 20th Century Fox. MacFarlane, whose Fox sci-fi series The Orville is transitioning to Hulu for its third season, will now develop new projects for NBC's broadcast, cable and streaming platforms via his production company Fuzzy Door. Amazon Studios struck overall deals with Brad Pitt's Plan B Entertainment and director Steve McQueen, at the same time revealing a host of new programs at the US Television Critics Association press tour. The streamer also signed a first-look deal with Gail Garcia Bernal and Diego Luna, with whom it's working on a four-part Spanish conquistador drama starring Javier Bardem. Filmmaker Steven Soderbergh signed a three-year deal with Warner Media's HBO and HBO Max, building on the Meryl Streep starring movie he's made for the latter called Let Them Talk. The sex, lies and videotape director will work exclusively with Warner Media in all forms of television and give the firm a first look at his features. BBC Studios brought together its Europe, Middle East and Africa distribution businesses under former Western Europe boss Nick Percy, while beginning discussions with Central and Eastern Europe, Middle East and Africa chief Grant Welland about a new role. And Viacom CBS undertook a management restructure of its international networks division, with UK Executive Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer Kerry Taylor among those promoted under President and Chief Executive David Lynn. For more on all these stories and hundreds of others, visit c21media.net. Downton Abbey came to an end last year after a decade on our screens, first as a series on ITV in the UK, PBS in the US and picked up by broadcasters all around the globe, running to six seasons and concluding with a movie of the same name last year. The period drama, portraying the lives of English aristocrats and the servants at their stately home, took the world by storm ten years ago. The series was created by writer Julian Fellows and exec produced by Carnival Films CEO Gareth Neem. The pair were at C21's International Drama Summit last month and I sat down with them to talk about how they first got together and the series' evolution, as well as upcoming collaborations Belgravia for ITV and Epics and The Gilded Age, now in the works at HBO. The following is an extended version of a C21 TV video interview you can watch on our site right now. We originally got together for a project that never happened. We were um, trying to make... uh, a limited series out of a novel I'd written called Snobs and it nearly went and it nearly went and it nearly went and then it didn't and um, 
And we decided when it was finally turned down by the BBC, we had dinner to sort of mark this event. Uh, terrible dinner, wasn't it? We got, because the restaurant we wanted to go to was shut and it was pelting with rain. So we went into the nearest one we could find that was still open. It was absolutely filthy. But nevertheless, during this dinner, Gareth suggested to me that I might like to go back into the territory of Gosford Park, which was a film I'd written before, and do it at this time for television. It's funny how these things happen sometimes, because in a way, when I bought that novel from you, I'm not sure actually whether I really wanted to make Snobs or whether actually I wanted to make Downton Abbey. I think the point was I read Snobs and, and having been a big fan of, of Gosford Park, the film that, that uh, Julian wrote for Robert Altman some years earlier, a combination really of seeing the film and then reading Snobs made me think there is something incredibly commercial, I suppose, in the writing of this most English of commentators. And, I, and I, you know, with, as, a, as a producer, I just thought, I think, you know, as, as, a, as a British producer who's always looking for exclusively British ideas, this very British voice, I think it is much more commercial than perhaps people know, know that it is. And I think it's something that would really travel. And initially, I think I just thought, well, snobs, that's a good story in its own right. That, that captures a piece of sort of English culture that you don't normally see. In fact, I'd, I don't know whether the story was quite big enough for us or, or, or whatever, whatever, for whatever reason, that project was not to be, that wasn't to be. But it led to perhaps a bigger idea, um, which became Downton. So it's funny how, you know, things that you initially set out to do don't quite work out as you plan, but still have a good conclusion. How did you embark upon the process of expanding that universe? And, and um, when you set out to, to write it, following the conversations with Gareth, um, how far did you see that universe expanding? Um, once I sort of committed to it, I mean, initially I was a bit hesitant because it seemed to be asking for a second helping of the same pie. But once I'd got over that, uh, and I started to map out the characters. There were certain things um, that I was interested in and it gave me an opportunity to explore them. I mean, like the American heiresses who'd come over. Uh, you know, we knew about these girls, but we didn't know what life was like in England 25, 30 years later when they were sitting in some freezing house in the Midlands uh, instead of being on Long Island. And so in a way, Cora sort of invented herself out of that. Uh, and there were various other characters that were sort of hooking into things that I, had already interested me. Actually, it moved pretty fast, to be honest. I think I did some character sketches and then um, a synopsis. And then I finally wrote the first episode and we had more detailed synopses of the remaining episodes. And then we went to ITV, didn't we, really? That was the... Yes, I mean, I, I remember the, the, the dinner we had to talk about, you know, I proposed the, the, the territory, the world, which was essentially taking the core of Gosford Park, the movie, that world, but doing it as a returning episodic show. Um, it's, I think it's a world I'd been thinking about for a very long time. I'd been around various stately homes in England that had quite well-preserved kitchen and backstage quarters, and I thought, oh, this, there's, something there's something about this that fascinates people. And then I also remember another day when I'd caught a random episode of, um, or part of an episode of Upstairs Downstairs when I was flicking through channels. 
and it occurred to me, and at, at that point I was, I was about 40 years old, I had never seen Upstairs Downstairs, and I thought, well, if I'm too young to watch Upstairs Downstairs, there's two generations of people who don't know about it, so this is the time to go back into that territory. I thought about it for a long time, but I didn't think there was any other writer that could do it until I read some more of Julian's work and we'd got to know each other. Because, of course, you hadn't really created a brand new no. um, series. And I think what I didn't quite know about you was what was a lover of soap you are and of episodic stories and, re and recurring characters. I didn't know that it was going to work quite as well as it did. Um, but we had the dinner, and actually we, there was a real meeting of minds because we were inspired by similar TV shows that we enjoyed, like The West Wing um, uh, and the great sort of traditions of British cinema. Um, all to put together. But I, I, I left the dinner not really expecting anything much to come of it. Um, and you do keep your cards to your chest. You didn't, I don't think there was any firm agreement when we left. And then I didn't hear anything for about, I don't know what it was, at least a couple of weeks. And then out of the blue, I received this email from Julian. Um, basically it said, subject, see what you think of this. And I clicked open the document. And there were probably the main 12 characters more or less as they ended up in Downton Abbey. Uh, and I have a hunch that really a lot of those characters have been sort of um, forming in your, in your I, I, there's a part of me that still thinks you may not have known it, but you were waiting to be asked to create a to show create like it, that. Yes. Um, and as you say, it was pretty quick after that. Once we, we had an idea to pitch to ITV, who were absolutely not looking for something like that, but I mean, fortunately for us, they embraced it as soon as they saw the idea, and then you wrote the script, and they loved that, and it did all move quite quickly. Even though in 2009, when they commissioned it, it was the worst year, I think, ever um, financially for ITV. It was the middle of the advertising recession following the global crash. Um, they had almost no money to buy new drama, but they committed to doing this, fortunately for us, and uh, it all happened quickly. We were very fortunate that Peter Fincham uh, who was, I forget his title, head of television or something, at that time uh, in ITV, that he really believed in it, despite everyone telling him he was mad and that the audience for uh, a period drama was dead and there was no one out there to watch it. And all this stuff was going on. Uh, but he just, there was something in it that spoke to him. Uh, and I love that, really, because I think it's nice when people are brave and go out on a limb and then they get rewarded. And, of course, he was rewarded because ITV had a very, very big hit with the show. Uh, and it was his baby, you know, so it was nice, really. When did you get the sense that it was turning into more than a hit show and becoming a, a phenomenon? Mm. Well, it was a gradual thing, um, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we, th we thought it was a good show when we finished it. We were pleased with it, and we thought it would... No reason why it shouldn't get a decent audience. But the audience on the, the month when we got the ratings uh, on the Monday morning... They were much higher than we expected. And of course, 2010, we were still very much in the land of the live viewing figures back then. This is what remarkable thing that's changed in 10 years, that it was all about the overnight then. Um, and that was the first thing. So that was good news. The following Saturday, I was listening to something on Radio 4, and uh, Rachel Johnson was speaking. And I can't remember for the life of me what she was talking about, but she said, apropos of something totally unconnected. She said, I don't mean that in a Downton Abbey sort of way. And I thought, that's interesting. It's already somebody's now using it in, in sort of as a cultural reference. And then um, 
the following weekend, and we, by complete coincidence, we were on the same flight going down to Nice to go to MIPCOM. Um, I got the ratings on the Monday morning for the second episode, and I switched my phone on. And the second episode, I think it went up by about 20% on the first episode, which of course was unheard of. I'm sure it still is now, but it was unheard of then that your, you know, that your first episode was always the, the, the biggest rating and that you would always drop down after that. So that was when I thought, this is now very significant. And um, it was very big through, I mean, we only made seven episodes in the first season, and yet it absolutely dom dominated the culture that autumn. And then there was a sort of gradual thing as it rolled around the world. You, you, you saw the US take to it. You saw this, suddenly this huge awards recognition. We were there at the Emmys the first year. And uh, there's no, no denying that of the three, 4,000 people in that theater, very few people had actually heard of the show until it started to win all these awards. And, and we were and sort of warned that we wouldn't win that year. You mustn't be disappointed. It's marvelous to be nominated. And then we won practically everything, didn't we? Uh, that was lovely. For me, it came when I, I was looking through the Times about three weeks after it had begun, and there was a big picture of the three sisters, and I thought, oh, I wonder what this story is about. And in fact, the headline said, George Osborne belongs in the cast of Downton Abbey, and it was a sort of attack on the Chancellor, and it was the same as Gareth listening to Rachel Johnson. You suddenly realise that it's getting into the kind of zeitgeist, into the, what they call the national conversation very early on. Um, yeah. and, then, and then, of course, when we went to America, which was a year later or whatever it was, uh, then the Americans took it up tremendously and suddenly it became an enormous thing. When you start thing. to be spoofed and all those sort of things that you know are a, a sign of success. I remember sitting in the back of a cab in New York where they've got the TV screens uh, and it was lots of footage of soccer, uh, English football, um, Premier League football, um, and the, the, uh, I forget which channel it was that was running all this English football. At the end it said, um, uh, forget Downton Abbey, the real English drama, it said, of the Premier League. And I, it, just things like that were, were, were um, you know, very pleasing to, to know that it was such a touchstone. How did that success then affect the, the writing process and... Um, you know, your ambitions and your approach to the series moving forwards? Well, I don't think it did affect the writing process very closely. The only thing I would say is that when you write a first series of anything, you always have to write a last episode that might be the last episode because you can't assume that it will find its audience. Whereas after that first series, we were reasonably confident that we would be a running show at least for sort of two or three years. And so you didn't feel the need to wrap it up. It was more uh, a, a kind of leaving endless trails of what might be picked up for the next year, you know, and those sort of, you began love things that didn't get resolved and so on. Um, so I suppose that was a change, but I don't think, people always say, do you sort of listen to the fans' suggestions for stories and things? And the answer is, I'm incredibly pleased they make suggestions and that they're interested enough to get in touch with you. But I don't really listen to them because all they ever are is they want to have their favorite character made happy. And if I obeyed everything the fans asked for, every single character would be as happy as a clam from the season's beginning to its end, uh, which wouldn't make for very demanding television. So uh, on the whole, you just have to take those suggestions as a kind of support. 
But we were so we were such fans of what the actors did on that show, um, you know, uh, which you don't have when you're developing a first season because you haven't fully cast it and you haven't seen any of the characters realised. But there was no doubt about it that that cast really brought something to it. They ran with those characters that you'd created, and uh, you know, people like. Kevin Doyle made something of quite a minor character and was written up, or think sure. about the, the comic potential of, uh, you know, of, uh, Mr. Carson, Mrs. Patmore, and Mrs. Hughes, and you wrote that whole wonderful storyline about the marriage, and then was there going to be any uh, sexual side to the marriage, and and that was because you knew how good all all those all three all of those three actors would were. Be, would be. Yes. So it, it was a, it, wonderful to see that because in a way we're the biggest fans, so we don't really need the suggestions of. As you've said before, please make Edith happy. I think, um, but I think the actors do change the writing. That I would say, not what they ask for uh, or suggest, but simply you write to their performances because you you start to see their strengths and you start to understand what they will do best, and you clearly, you know, obviously try to make opportunities in which they will shine their brightest. And we started to have the same, um, very similar opinions to the, to, the, to the fans, I think. We knew that, I mean, there was, there was never any original plan to have Mr. Carson marry Mrs. Hughes. Oh, no. That wasn't the plan at all. That was Julian responding to the chemistry that those two actors had. And we were thinking the same thing that the fans were thinking, that there was a great chemistry and it had to happen. And there were many other examples like that where, um, which is just what makes it all so fun. There's the inventions coming from all sorts of different places. Talk me through the period where the series came to an end and then the decision to, uh, to go into a movie. Well, I think we, we knew it was the end or time for the end because the younger actors particularly wanted to move on. They wanted to explore their new status within the industry, which have, in all of their cases was quite different from where they had been before we began and they had become famous all around the world and so on. Uh, and they wanted to explore that completely understandably and reasonably. Uh, and, you know, uh, you do slightly begin uh, to feel that everyone's been in love with everyone and everyone's lost their money and everyone's had it back. And, and you know, you, you can't just go on and on. I mean, I now understand why on Dynasty, Fallon went up in a rocket ship with aliens because as the writer, you're just thinking, what on earth can I do with them next? Um, and, and I think we felt it had played out. But Gareth was quite different from me over the film because he, he felt early on there would be a film. Um, I didn't really. I, didn't, I, I felt when I'd written the end, I'd made everyone as happy as I could. I gave Carson my own shake that I have, so that was a little bit of sadness, but uh, not enough to make anyone miserable, and everyone else was happy. Uh, and we said goodbye, and I thought it was goodbye. And we all went to the Ivy Club and cried and drank champagne. And, uh, you know, as far as I was concerned, we'd come to the end of the road. But no. Uh, and gradually, over the next year or two, the idea of a film sort of took root. And, and it, I finally came to see that it probably was going to happen. Well, I, I, I agree that, that really the TV show had run its course. And I, you know, as the person having to keep all the elements together, I didn't think it would be sustainable very much longer. And I think we thought, and our, our producing partner, Liz, the three of us felt that we didn't want the show to go stale. We wanted to quit while we were ahead. Um, so we decided to call time at the end of season six. But by that point, we had all, all been talking about a possible film. 
and I know it was a sort of tonic when we, when we announced that that was it, having that possibility of the film made it, a, a, it, it sort of sweetened the pill for the millions of fans around the world who didn't want it to end and who really loved those characters. The idea that they weren't uh, lost forever was, was, a, was a definitely a positive story. But, um, you know, it did take about three years to get everyone back together again. And, you know, taking a television idea with an ensemble cast of over 20 characters um, when we were making about 11 hours of content every year to try and distill that into one movie for all those characters without 11 hours to do it in only two hours that presented a lot of challenges and, and there were a lot of challenges in getting all of the cast back all holding hands and jumping in together saying that we're going to do it everyone was well you know there were, there were good intentions and everyone uh, had a sense they wanted to do it, but that's not quite the same thing as saying, "Are you going to commit? Are you going to commit? Are you?" Going? You know, getting everyone to make that commitment did take an awful lot of work. But I, I was pretty determined to do it. I, uh, I did feel that if we hadn't um, pulled it off, that somehow the, the ending that I had in mind for the Downton story wouldn't quite have happened. And your working relationship has obviously continued as well beyond beyond the movie and pre-movie. I'm presuming. Uh, Belgravia and, and the Gilded Age were in development so perhaps you could just sort of talk a little bit more about those two projects and again how your uh, relationships evolved with those. Well on Belgravia Julian wrote the novel and I knew he was writing it and, I, and, and uh, you originally published it electronically and <laughs> chapter by chapter and you said to me oh don't bother reading all that just wait till the book's published in full form um, and when I read it, I thought, oh, it's very obvious that we should turn this into television. And if I don't do it, there will be six other producers um, that are waiting in a line to, you know, to, to do it. It felt very, you know, it, there, there were so many of the familiar um, subjects, albeit it's a very different piece um, to Downton, but um, that, at its heart, that social observation um, uh, and the various other themes of new money and old money and, and families and things like that, but done in a very different way in a different era. I just thought, oh, we should definitely do this. It was quite interesting adapting my own work. I've never done that before. I've either written originally for the screen uh, or, or I don't think, you know, I mean, I've had snobs and things adapted for the radio and to do, you know, other things like that, but, but I didn't do it. Um, and you do think differently. I mean, you, you, you look at a speech that works on the page, but it's not going to work in a film. It's too long, and we know all this, you know. So um, that I found rather interesting and rather enjoyable. But I'm pleased with the way it turned out. I mean, obviously, uh, Gareth and I have now made quite a lot of television, if you put it all together. And so I think in certain areas, we have developed a kind of shorthand. It doesn't mean we always agree by any means, but I think we, we don't waste time in knowing what the, uh, trying to find out what the other one thinks, it's pretty clear what they think. Uh, and I think it makes it uh, quicker and easier, really. But Gilded Age was always a subject that, I mean, that setting has always fascinated you. Yes, I've time. always been interested in that whole business of America, post-Civil War America, uh, which is really when modern America began, these vast fortunes that had come out of the 1860s, out of the war and the palaces they built up and down Fifth Avenue. And when the Americans invented their own way of being rich, until then they had rather imitated the European rich. 
And, uh, and anyway, they weren't that rich. I mean, they were, you know, very well off, but the, the level of money that people like Jay Gould and Vanderbilt and things had, no one had ever had that amount of money on the earth. And suddenly there was a whole class of them, you know, uh, and that always rather fascinated me, the creation of Newport. Uh, and the, the beginning of the yachts, the whole yacht culture and all that stuff. And of course it went on longer. I mean, uh, Downton was quite deliberately the dramatization of what was bound to be in part the decline of the power of the British uh, upper classes. Whereas Gilded Age, they're going full steam ahead. They're right in the middle of it. Uh, in fact, they haven't yet reached their golden years. It's, it's still pouring in. Uh, and that seems a different dynamic and rather fun to approach really. And it's interesting to see how, how this will work because the idea of a historical drama, the idea of, 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 of the class system, of social observation is, is, is such a well-trodden path in British content in television and film because of our literary history and because of our history. Um, and of course there was, um, America had its own version of that in the 19th century, but it's not very well known about. I mean, academics know about it, historians know about it, but it's, it has not had a lot of exposure on screen. There have been some films made, some Edith Wharton adaptations and so on, but it hasn't had anything like the scrutiny that uh, historical drama has, has had in, in Britain, and it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. People have talked about the, the golden age of television, it's a, a, a US network's boss called John Langraff that you, I'm sure you're uh, familiar with, who I think it was last year said that Too much content moved beyond, beyond the golden age and was now in the gilded age, uh, a oversupply of, of, of content in the market. I wonder if you have a, a final thought on the sort of the present state of the industry, as it were. Well, I think this is a, a rather rich period because it is expanding and changing and developing in all sorts of different ways. Uh, Personally, I suspect there will be some alignment and joining up of different platforms because uh, we do seem to have an awful lot of different ways of watching television at the moment and they all have to be supplied with content. Uh, and, and I suspect there will be a slight retraction uh, and, you know, just a kind of tightening up. But uh, I think it's fun to be part of. I mean, you know, in 10 years it changed more than it did in the previous 40. Uh, and that has been very enlightening to be part of. Yeah, that, you know, um, John's made very interesting um, comments about the way that the, the, the industry has developed over, over these 10 years. Is there too much content? Well, we're, we're probably all struggling to watch everything, that's for sure. But from a producer's point of view, from anyone who's making content, I mean, we just want to get our shows made. So if there's, I mean, it's not really my job to sort of bring those audiences and to compete one network or cable streaming service competing with another. We just want to get our shows made. So it probably is a good era, particularly as a British producer, where 10 years ago, you know, you, you got to go to the BBC, ITV, and if you were really lucky, Channel 4 might have some money for you, and that was it. So this has got to be a better place and time. And it must be a good time for actors, particularly mm, young actors. Definitely because there is so much demand. Actors and writers. Writers is always a struggle. Julian Fellows and Gareth Neem talking to me for a C21 TV video interview you can watch on our site right now.
Now, from Downton Abbey to The Heartless, a rather different sort of British period drama set in the early noughties and the brainchild of Lucy Barrett, sister of Libertine's guitarist Carl, who's also helped put together a genuine band to form the cast of a semi-autobiographical series currently in development at Zoe Rocker's Ruby Rock Pictures, in which Germany's beta film recently bought a stake. C21's Inigo Alexander sat down with all three to find out more about the project. I had, for several years, had something that I was putting together that was loosely based on my own, kind of a biographical thing, and it's difficult to write that and then have an objective view so I think I was kicking that around for quite a while until it kind of fell into place so I managed to sort of pull it away from me and sort of create these characters about a time when uh, Carl and I shared a flat together in London in the early noughties you you know it's a story about siblings and I'd left drama school and Carl was starting a band quite famously so I had finally found my way into telling this story by inventing a character that's a neutral character that mm-hmm. comes in and, and is not from that world, and we see the world through her eyes. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was thinking, I've, I think I've cracked it. I think this is now something that's not just a version of my diary, which was, it was hard to pull away from at first. And yeah. that's when I said to Carl, how do you feel about kind of writing a soundtrack with me and like kind of and and Carl said I absolutely I'd like to even be more involved than that so I was like oh my god that's amazing (laughs) and so I shared the script with him and kind of um yeah so Carl at what point did you decide to fully jump on board was it a progressive thing where I thought well I could start with the music and then I'll help out if if it sort of uh, drags me in a bit more or was it Jump in. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I have a certain ownership to the story as well, in part, and um, you know, and, and we've, we've got a lot of memories and, uh, about it together, and you know, it was our flat, uh, in, in part. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, I've, I, I wanted to be involved in it, in the story. I want, I've been wanting to work with Lucy for ages. We've been wanting to do stuff together because we both be sort of living parallel lives, and mm-hmm. for some reason, never the totally met. Um, and uh, I think, um, yeah, when it, it just, uh, it just seemed like a. a an amazing project worth clearing my diary for, really. I think yeah. it's really interesting to navigate this as a, as, as a period thing because no one's ever done it before as well. So it's mm. quite, you know, the, the, you know it's, it's really kind of writing history in a way. Yeah. Sorry, if I get a bit of bubble sound. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of bringing it uh, to the screen and making a project out of it, how, going forward, looking down the line, how much do you think you'll stick to your recollection and your diary or your brother's experience of it, or do you think it could branch out? Into well, I mean, it's not, it's based story? on, it's based on so that we can use those kind of anecdotes and stories and we can spread them liberally among characters and the characters are very much developed into their own you know I think you have to pull it away I personally think it's very hard to biographically write for yourself so you have to pull Mm -hmm. it away from that and we've done that successfully I think and when we met Zoe and she completely understood what what we were trying to say and how we wanted to tell it and she said let's kind of do this teaser we kind of felt that we were in safe hands and the the other thing to say is that we because of the music we wanted the band in the show to record the music that me and Carl write mm. and so then that became why don't they why don't they actually be a band and so we ended up doing a lengthy casting to find credible musicians that mm-hmm. rather than just actors playing rock stars we kind of it was really important to us to have like it being credit like really credible so we thought the best way was to make them a band get them to do gigs take mm-hmm. them into the recording studio do all of those things and we managed to do all of that with them before we even shot the teaser so by the time we shot the teaser they were so relaxed with mm 
being on stage, the song that they're singing, they were like, they are a band and they come across as a band, not actors with instruments. Mm -hmm. And so I think being able to, the luxury of doing that was amazing. Even in the process of how we've developed it from the beginning, from when I first started working with Lucy and Carl, like, you know, it's very clear that out there it's hard to get people to understand that music can work fluidly in drama. People just mm -hmm. kind of have that panic and they think, how is this going to happen? So we made a decision very early stages to say, well, okay, put my money where my mouth is, let's go off and shoot a teaser and kind of as a proof of concept to say, well, look, it's a world that's inviting, it's fun, it's got energy, but story. And then we went off and we started casting those characters. And actually it's been lovely for Lucy and Carl to sort of work around some of the actors that we've cast for the, the roles in it. We put it out through casting director who's fantastic, I've worked with a lot, mm -hmm. and we were getting so many amazing actors saying we really want to be part of this. So we met everyone, I was there from every single casting thing, we watched every tape, we would all like sit down in the evenings, be on the phone going, what do you think about that one? Actually, and then Carl's going, I don't know, could that person be inspired by me? We'll see. Um, but then the person we cast as Sally was amazing. It's like we have yeah. Ella Ray Smith and she's just been in, she was in Into the Badlands for AMC and mm -hmm. her support has been incredible. Like the whole way through, yeah, she's, she's like, I really rich. want to yeah. make this happen. So it's been lovely, like everyone yeah. has just been a dream. She said she was really drawn because it felt like a real story and I guess if that's what draws actors in hopefully that's what will draw viewers in. Mm -hmm. In terms of making it um, a real story and dra drawing people in, did you ever think about making a, a documentary out of the story and sort of reliving it and breaking it down? Or well, did you, did well, you interesting. Always I mean, I can't actually even explain how quickly this project has evolved more than we mm -hmm. ever thought it would at the beginning. Like, originally it was just, hey, Lucy, I read her script and went, as a sample, and I said to her agent, said, is this available? I want this project. And he went, well, you have a meeting with her, and we just clicked straight away. Um, as we've been evolving it, we've kind of realised that, you know, the, the band now exists on their own. Like, mm -hmm. NME have launched them out there, they've had their music video, they've released their single. We want to, alongside it, because we're getting endorsed by Gibson and various brands already saying this is something really can cross over, that our intention is, while we're developing the series and Lucy's writing it with whichever partner we pick, that we will do a kind of documentary alongside it where we follow the band as they go on their tour while we're doing both. And I think the documentary side is kind of something we kind of came to us recently. We were like, that's great. And then everyone's going, yeah, well, let's just get on with that from January. So that is the plan. Mm -hmm. uh, Carl, in terms of getting the, when, when you were involved with the casting and the band was uh, setting, it, setting itself up as a band, were you giving them pointers on how to sort of uh, get into the skin and sort of coalesce as a band? A little bit, but I mean, you know, they, I think because we're going for quite an organic approach, they had to kind of have a bit, bring a bit to the table with them, you know, like you said, with casting musicians. Um, I tried not, I mean, I think I'm, I'm of the belief that if you put the right, the right casting for the musicians as well, then they'll evolve together and become their own thing. So there's a little bit of a, maybe a leather jacket there, maybe don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe no foot on the monitor, <laughs> uh, you know. But uh, yeah, but essentially, it's, it's, I'm a firm believer in the chemistry and them evolving together. And also, you know, push them out on the road, you know, they've, yeah. they've done gigs independently. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, I think, I think, you know, I, th I want to say, I think Zoe has been really brave as a producer and that's another thing that really attracted me to, mm. to this and Lucy as well, to, to allow this music and um, TV, often don't work, and it's, it's very hard to get that, to get yeah. that going, but, uh, and, but to allow the band to be organic and, and, and done, done in that way, I think, is, um, is really interesting. And it, I've had to turn off the TV off a lot, many, many times when people have tried to do this and got it wrong and just got the ratio of music, so, you know. Uh, yeah, but this is uh, this does feel different. Carl and Lucy Barrett and Zoe Rocker talking with C21's Inigo Alexander. You can read more about that project on the site of our sister title, Drama Quarterly, right now. 
That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast next week. And in the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest industry developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening.